The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Um, we're continuing on in our Life of David series called After God's Heart. And uh, we're now, I think this is message number seven in it. I have no idea how long it's going to go. <laughs> um, not as long as Luke or even Ephesians. Uh, so we'll be done in God's timing, okay? <laughs> um, we're, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 25 today, and the title of the message is uh, Playing the Fool. Uh, let's pray together as we uh, turn our hearts to his word. God, we um, want to give you hearts that are submitted to the authority of your word in our lives. And so we pray that this would not just be a moment of hearing a good story or to be entertained, but to come before the guidance of your word and to allow that word to speak specifically uh, into our lives and to minister deeply to our places of need where we need to hear your truth and know your heart. For we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know how many of you saw this movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Um, it was actually Oscar-nominated and was released last year. Uh, I, I actually think it should have won um, the Oscar, definitely over The Shape of Water, um, but be that as it may. Uh, um, <clears throat> now, I want to say something before I talk about this movie. Um, I recognize... I've come to realize that when I reference a movie in a sermon, quite a few of you go and watch that movie uh, right away <laughs> sometimes. And so I, I, I think this is actually a pretty amazing movie that has a lot of biblical themes in it. But I also want to give the warning that it is a rated R movie, and it's a hard rated R movie. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there that's pretty rough to see. Um, uh, some pretty graphic scenes of violence and things like that. Um, but <clears throat> nevertheless, and, and I know all of you here have kind of different levels of tolerance and belief about some of those things, about what you choose to watch. So um, just please don't go immediately and rent it and then go, what the, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> all right, just, just to let you know. Okay, all right, anyway. <clears throat> so now that I got that, th that little thing out of the way, um, <clears throat> so in this film, uh, Frances McDormand um, plays Mildred, a mother whose teenage daughter uh, was basically raped and killed. And seven months have gone by, and there's not a single arrest that has been made in connection with her daughter's murder. And she's convinced that it's because nobody cares enough about this case, to do anything. And so in order to, she basically takes matters into her own hands, and in order to try to get the attention of the sheriff, um, she rents three billboards right outside the town to call attention to the community to the fact of the lack of any arrests. And those three billboards will unleash a chain of events that will end up causing 
so much pain and so much chaos and so much destruction in that little community of hers. And what you see as the story unfolds is that Mildred is desperately looking for a villain to blame for either her daughter's death or the lack of justice that she's receiving in the aftermath of her death. And I think the first most obvious choice for a villain is the sheriff himself, played by Woody Harrelson. But as the story goes on, you realize it's hard to blame him as a, as a villain in this story. He's just a sheriff dealing with his own issues and trying to do the best he can with his limited resources. And you just sort of go down the line of all of these other prospective villains, and you don't get a Hollywood villain in this story. It's just a parade of sad people living sad lives, wrestling with their own brokenness. But in Mildred's anger and rage, she is determined to find somebody who will pay for this, for what happened to her daughter. She wants justice, and she will stop at nothing in order to get it, no matter what, no matter how many other lives must be damaged in her pursuit of this justice. In one of the later scenes in the movie, um, Mildred is planting flowers around these three billboards. And... Uh, as she's doing so, this deer shows up out of nowhere and begins to approach her in this surprising way. And Mildred begins to wonder, could this be a sign? And in a moment of vulnerable honesty, uh, Mildred shares her darkest fears to this deer, revealing that she not only is in this frantic search for justice, But her search is also a search for meaning, for understanding, for purpose in all of this. And this is the little soliloquy that she says to this deer. Yup, still no arrests. How come, I wonder? Because there ain't no God, and the whole world is empty, and it doesn't matter what we do to each other? I hope not. How come you came up here out of nowhere looking so pretty? You ain't trying to make me believe in reincarnation or something, are you? And she pauses and she says, Because you're pretty, but you ain't her. She got killed, and now she's dead forever. In other words, the cruel death of her daughter, with no prospect of justice in sight, only seems to have confirmed to Mildred her greatest fear. That life has no greater purpose. There is no higher meaning to the chaos of it all. There is no such thing as justice. And if there is no God, then all she is left with is her own determination to get justice for her daughter in this life because there ain't nothing after it. The great playwright William Shakespeare, I think, echoes Mildred's greatest fears in his play Macbeth. When he writes, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, 
signifying nothing. As a youth, King David was filled with these testimonies of God's presence and faithfulness in his life. We saw that in some of the earlier messages that I preached. 1 Samuel 17, verse 36 to 37, David is saying, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. What youthful confidence, right? David has absolute confidence that God would pull through for him against this giant Goliath because he says, this has just been the story of my life. Every time that I needed help, God was there for me. Every prayer was answered. Every hope fulfilled. So he says, just like God has always been there for me, he is going to be with me as I fight Goliath. And sure enough, God was. But after Goliath, God does something interesting, doesn't he? He now sends David, his servant, into the wilderness so that in that wilderness, David could learn some much harder lessons that up to that point in his life, he had not had to learn. But these were absolutely vital lessons if David would be king over his people. In a sense, in the wilderness, David loses everything. Everything that provided any sense of familiarity and comfort and security, it was all gone in the wilderness. Nothing was familiar. Nothing was safe in that wilderness. And as I said last time I preached, David did not go willingly into the wilderness. He was chased there by Saul, who wanted to kill him. And you know what I could say is this, is in David's younger years, in his youth, his faith was simple because his life was simple. You need help, you pray, God shows up. But these years in the wilderness will put that faith of David to the test. Do you really believe that God is still with you, David, even when he does not show up in the way that you expect him to? We see the beginnings of a new David emerge at the very start of his wilderness years. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? This is no longer David with a confident swagger. This is David in confusion struggling to understand why he is being hunted like an animal when he has done absolutely nothing to deserve this. And I think what David is really trying to say to his friend Jonathan is, this is not how the story of my life is supposed to be unfolding. For over a decade in the wilderness, David is going to have to sleep with one eye open, barely able to sleep in the same place twice. In my last message, I traced David's steps, right? As he literally had to hop from one place to the next to get away from Saul. And throughout this time, David tries to act with integrity, do the right thing, but as I said last time, all he is returned, that that favor is only returned with betrayal and suffering. 
I think Pastor Chris did a great job last Sunday. I had a chance to listen to that podcast, uh, which captured uh, David's desperation as he unpacked Psalm 17, asking God to vindicate him from his enemies. Well, to add to David's discouragement, we're told at the start of chapter 25 in verse 1, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. You can make the argument that Samuel, the prophet, was one of David's last allies, one of his last friends that he had in Israel. One of the few people that David could actually count on. In fact, when David flees from Saul at the very beginning, by instinct, he goes to Ramah, to Samuel's house, and seeks refuge there. And Samuel takes him in and feeds him and protects him and helps him. In fact, Samuel is the one who anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And now Samuel was dead. We're told that David, as a response to that, goes to the wilderness of Paran. Now, the wilderness of Paran is not even in Israel. It's way into the Sinai Peninsula, out of Israel. We're not sure why he did that. Some people think that he did that because he realized with Samuel dead, his life is really in danger, and to totally get away from Saul, he went outside of Israel. Other scholars believe that he actually went by himself without his men to go to this desert to mourn the loss of Samuel. We're not sure what the story is. But eventually, from Paran, David makes his way back to Israel, back to that area that we've been talking about in that last message. Uh, And he goes specifically to a part of the wilderness called Maon, which is where our story today takes place. And so in verse 2 to 3, it says this, And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel, Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. We learn three things about this guy, Nabal. One, he is filthy rich. Number two, he's got horrible character. And number three, somehow he managed to land a beautiful wife who is also very wise, okay? Probably because he was filthy rich. Um, I, I'm talking more about probably an arranged marriage, okay? Not, not necessarily that, that she was a gold digger. I didn't mean to imply that, okay? All right. Kind of came out wrong. All right. Um, Nabal is what the Bible calls a fool. In fact, his literal name in Hebrew is fool. And I think there is, a, there is a, a danger of painting a picture of Nabal that can be harmful to our understanding of the story. Because I think it'd be easy to paint Nabal as a clownish character, right? Sort of like a village idiot, right? But I think the truth is, if we were alive during that time, Nabal would have actually been a pretty, pretty frightening character. I think he would have been pretty intimidating. Uh, Because the combination of great power with no morals is pretty terrifying, isn't it? When the Bible talks about foolishness, it has nothing to do with intelligence. 
whether you are a fool or whether you are wise, according to Scripture, is completely dependent on how you relate to God. And so we could say this. The fool lives life with no acknowledgement of God in any of his or her choices. That's the Bible's definition of a fool. One who lives life in such a way that there is no acknowledgement of God in any of the choices that he or she does. I think David captured it well in Psalm 14, 1-2, and may very well have been thinking about Nabal when he wrote this psalm. He says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What the Bible is saying is this. According to the Bible, the most fundamental choice that we make in our lives is whether or not we choose to acknowledge the reality of God in our lives. That singular decision will determine every other choice that we make in life and will ultimately determine our destiny. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, what the Bible says is the truly wise person lives in that fear of the Lord, but you cannot teach a fool. Basically, a fool is unteachable. He thinks he already knows everything, and so he is not open to any counsel or advice from anyone, not even God himself. And that's who Nabal is, and that Nabal will live up to that name and act like a fool in this story. And so David sends word to Nabal, and he tells them this. He says, while we were camped out there in the wilderness, we happened to run across a bunch of your shepherds and the thousands of sheep and animals you have all there. And, you know, in the wilderness, it was like the Wild West. There's no law there. There's no police enforcement. And so those shepherds were actually in real danger. And David says to Nabal, I protected your men. I watched over your shepherds and guarded them when they were out there so that nothing would happen to your animals or to your people. And so what David says to Nabal is, um, as a gesture of gratitude, it would be really nice if, because of the feast holiday that's coming up, if you just gave us some food that we could celebrate with my men as a, just a, a gift of appreciation. Well, this is how Nabal replies to David's request in verse 10 to 12. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men returned away and came back and told him all this. Remember, the definition of a fool is somebody who lives life without acknowledging God. And that's exactly how Nabal acts here. If there is no God, if there is no deeper meaning or purpose to life, then what is the point of honoring David's request? He knows that David is a fugitive on the run for his life, and so Nabal makes a very shrewd calculation that makes all the sense in the world according to his worldview which is, why not just take advantage of David's desperate situation and just 
use him for his free labor that he already gave to me with absolutely no intention of repaying him because after all, what's he going to do? He's a fugitive. This is the logic of a fool. It is simply, what's in it for me? Nothing? Then why in the world would I do this? Now, unlike Nabal, who only knows how to operate out of self-interest, we just saw in the previous chapter that David was very different. He does not kill Saul when he has the opportunity to do so because he believes that his life is in God's hands. And so we have no doubt here that David will respond to Nabal's foolishness with wisdom from God. Except that he doesn't. (laughs) Verse 13 says this, And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. David is going to meet Nabal's foolishness with even a greater foolishness of his own. He orders his men to strap on their swords and follow him to what promises to be a bloodbath, a slaughter in response to his bruised ego. If you look at verses 21 to 22, we get further details about David's mind, state of mind here. It says, Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow in the, has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Speaking of Nabal. Now, that phrase, one male, it's just it's, it's kind of interesting. Almost every English translation says one male. But that's not actually what the Hebrew says. They, they had to make the Bible PG, at least 13. <laughs> so they changed the wording a little. It's as close as the Bible comes to a swear word, okay? What he, and I had, I had to remember the youth group is with us, so I, I'm trying to figure out how to say it in still a way. But what basically David says is, if I so much as leave one person who pees on a wall <laughs> alive in Nabal's camp, and which sex pees on a wall, right? <laughs> now, I don't, I don't share that just to be salacious. I share that to let you know David's state of mind here. This is not man after God's own heart, David, here. This is David in a rage. This is David absolutely livid. It's interesting, huh? Just after trusting in God, and this is one of his moments where David shines so much, Saul goes to use David's cave as a bathroom, and he has him right there to kill, and he lets Saul go. But now David goes in the exact opposite direction with Nabal, and decides to take matters into his own hands. And I think there's so much truth in that, isn't there? 
the truth is that even in our own journey, it's, our path is never as needed and as straight as we wish it was, right? And the truth is that even after some of our greatest moments of victory, we can experience some of our most embarrassing and shameful defeats, can't we? What I find so interesting is that David was able to stand up so courageously and be God's champion against this giant named Goliath and this fool named Nabal almost takes him down. (laughs) Dale Davis writes this. He does not make the connection, speaking of David, he does not make the connection between the situations with Saul and Nabal. He does not see the wideness of God's wisdom. Such failure is not unique to David. Have we not been caught in the same net? Can we not recall times in which we saw God's way quite clearly in some dilemma, but missed it completely in a fresh situation when the same principles apply? Can we all understand that, right? It's, It's just sad sometimes how that lesson that we learn in one moment of our life doesn't always automatically transfer to the next chapter of our life. David may have, I think, acted this way, frankly, because this is exactly what God intended to happen for David in the wilderness. As I said earlier, it's one thing to do the right thing when God always rewards you with good for your good. But stop for a moment and think about everything that David has been through in his recent past. If you were here two weeks ago, I talked about how David was betrayed by the Ziphites who spied on him and told Saul where his location was so that once again he had to run for his life. And then he goes to this town called Keilah where he actually saves these people from the Philistines and right after saving them, they are going to betray him also. They're going to double-cross him by telling Saul where David is. And now the situation with Nabal who treats him like a piece of garbage after everything that David has done for him. And in a way, you could say it's not hard to sympathize with David and a growing sense of frustration and self-pity that must have been entering into his heart after all of these injustices that he was facing. Meaning, despite my trying to live the way that I believe I'm supposed to, all I am repaid with is evil every turn I make. And so in a sense, it almost looks like David has had enough and he wants a taste of justice. Even if he has to get that justice at the edge of his own sword, he says, this guy is going to pay. He's going to pay dearly for what he's done to me. In that movie, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, uh, Mildred's ex-husband sees the destruction that his ex-wife is causing in all of these people's lives. And everyone is asking her to back down, even her own son, who is suffering so much because of her choices. And they're saying, just let the police handle this. Let them deal with this Mildred. And in a chance encounter at this restaurant, her ex-husband sees her, and he tells her, all this anger just begets greater anger. All this anger just begets greater anger. And I think that's the exact truth that we're seeing here in 1 Samuel 25. First main teaching point I want to give you is simply this. Foolishness begets greater foolishness. 
In other words, I think what this story teaches us is this. The foolishness of others has this power to draw out the fool in us, doesn't it? And we can become tempted to play the fool ourselves in reaction to the way that others are treating us. When somebody acts selfishly toward you, it can very easily stir up your own selfishness toward them. A gossip can turn you into a gossip. A bitter person can awaken in you your own bitterness. This is the infectious nature of foolishness. You know, I was in, this, in my car the other day uh, on this highway when there was this massive merge taking place. And uh, uh, one of the lanes of the highway was closed. And, you know, everyone always tries to figure out when the appropriate time is to merge. And I don't know why this was happening on this highway, but people were all, like, getting into one lane, like a mile, like half a mile before the actual merge is taking place. And you kind of sometimes feel good about that, right? It's like, great. There's order here. And if everyone plays by the rules, we're all going to zip right through. And I'm waiting there, and you know that feeling, right? Because you're like about 250 cars down from that merge, and you're constantly looking in your rearview mirror. And you're seeing these other cars coming, and they're seeing the merge, and they're all coming into line. And then that one fool (laughs) goes out, right? And decides he doesn't have to wait in line like everyone else and zips down. And then another fool follows him and another. And the, the, the logic goes like this, going, what are they doing? How dare they? How can they do that? And then you realize, I got to do that too. <laughs> right? That's, and then the entire single lane breaks down. And everybody just goes into that other lane. And it's just a big mess now, right? And, and now we're all going to have to wait there, right? Um, I think that's what's what we're talking about when we say foolishness begets greater foolishness. When somebody doesn't play by the rules, when someone acts like a fool, they disrupt the whole ecosystem, don't they? And now you've got to figure out, what do I do? <laughs> I'm not going to be the chum. I'm not going to be the doormat. I'm not going to be the person that's on the losing end of this stick. And so you feel, I've got to fight too i got to fight for my own. And the danger out of all of this is, at the end of the day, the, f- the biggest fool in the room is the one that becomes the leader of everyone else and dictates the rules of the game. And I think that's what was happening to David here. He was sick of playing by the rules. He was sick of trying to do the right thing all the time when everybody else just seems to take advantage of it and do the wrong thing. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to take my turn here. I'm going to get my way for once and do what I want. I'm going to teach this Nabal a lesson that he's never going to forget. And the people will know the name of David after what happens today. Thank God there's another character in this story named Abigail, (laughs) Nabal's wife. In verses 14 to 17, it says this, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. 
They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. And so Abigail hears the report from one of her servants. And she gathers this huge amount of food and loads it on a train of donkeys. And she starts to head out to David to meet him in the wilderness. And this is the speech that she gives to David in that wilderness when she finally meets up with him. In verses 23 to 31, When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the Lord your God, uh, seek your life, the Lord, life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Interesting choice of metaphor there. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. This is the single longest speech given by a woman found in the Bible. And it's a beautiful one. In essence, Abigail brings David back to his senses. Basically what she says is this. Don't let the fool of my husband turn you into a fool also. Don't let the foolishness of others determine your own choices, David, because your destiny is not that destiny. It is not the destiny of a fool. Ultimately, I think the most powerful message that Abigail gives to David is this. By you acting so impulsively in your foolishness, you are threatening to derail God's purposes and calling in your life. And what she says is this, David, don't you understand that your life and God's life are woven in extra, it just cannot be separated from one another. That's your life, David. Your life is determined by the fact that God has woven his story into your very life. That's your destiny, David. Your destiny is not going there and killing my husband. 
taking this blood vengeance on them and having dirty blood on your hands. That is not your destiny. It's interesting that she makes reference to a sling. And she does this very cleverly. I think what she's doing in a very clever way is trying to remind David of his moment with Goliath and saying, remember when you used your sling to kill Goliath because God was with you. That same God is still with you here in the wilderness. Don't lose sight of that, David. And don't lose sight of the fact that you have a calling that is so different than my husband's. Don't forget who you are and whose you are. Eugene Peterson says this. Abigail says, in effect, your task, David, is not to exact vengeance. Vengeance is God's business, and you aren't God. You're out here in the wilderness to find out what God is doing and who you are before God. The wilderness isn't an experiment station in which you test yourself and find out how strong and resilient you are. It's where you discover the strength of God and God's faithful ways of working in and through your life. Nabal is a fool, but don't you also become a fool? One fool is enough in this story. David's life is so tangled up in God's work and revelation that there's no way he can extricate himself from it and still be himself. His life is formed and conditioned by the tender mercies of God, not the foolish devilries of Nabal. And I think that's God's message to us today, just as it was to David in the wilderness thousands of years ago. Don't take your cues from the fools that are around you. Don't let others dictate your behavior and ultimately your destiny. But realize that God has already set for you a destiny out of his love for you, a greater purpose. And here is the thing is there's going to be seasons in your life when that purpose isn't very clear and God's presence doesn't feel very real. But it is precisely in those moments when we are so tempted to act like a fool that God would say, remember who you are. One of the other things I think that we can see here as a lesson in the story of David with Nabal and Abigail is this. God often offers us the protection of his wisdom through the counsel of others. In other words, wisdom is a community effort. What the Bible says is this. The fool rejects community while the wise person desperately seeks it in his life. The fool doesn't feel he needs any outside counsel because he thinks he knows everything. But the wise person longs for the wise counsel of others to speak into their lives. Whatever faults that David may have had, one virtue that I think he had that was really in many ways a saving grace was he was a good listener. He was a good listener. Repeatedly in his life, in the midst of some of his greatest, most embarrassing failures, some people are going to be sent by God to speak into his life. And to his credit, almost every time, David listens. And he takes the heart, the rebuke that he's being given. And here is this woman rebuking him in a very mild and gentle way, but it is a rebuke. And David listens. 
And so I want to sort of, as I wrap up the message today, challenge you with that thought. Are you more like a fool who thinks you have all the answers for your life and knows what you're doing? Or are you like the wise person, like David, who longs for the counsel of others in your life and realizes that on your own, you do not have enough wisdom to live the fullness of what God intended for you, but to see the community around you as God's gift to you, a blessing that he gives to you to speak into your life and show you what you cannot see by yourself. I wonder, are there people in your life right now that are trying to speak wisdom into your life? But you're too foolish to truly listen and hear what they're saying to you. Or do you have this humility like David had to say, thank God for you who spared me this ridiculous thing that I was about to do in my anger and my foolishness. I think without this frame of seeing God in everything, there is just no way to live the life that God asks of us, this life of wisdom, this life of faith. I probably referenced (laughs) these verses more than almost any other passage in scripture, but I think it's because it has provided for me such a framework of understanding God's heart toward us. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, and we'll just close with this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the faith with which we walk this Christian life. It's to say, when I see everyone else cutting corners and everyone else acting so selfishly and often at my expense, and when I find it so unbearable to be the one person who's trying to do the right thing, live a life of faithfulness. You know, you may never get your moment, you know, You may never get to see the results of all of that faithfulness in this life. But it is this message that God is for us, not against us. And everything centers around that singular belief that my life is woven into his story. And Christ on the cross shows me what that story is all about. His love toward me 
and his purposes in my life, irrespective of what any of my enemies, any of the people that are trying to bring me down are doing in my life. God has a will. God has a plan. And that purpose will be carried out in my life. Let's pray. First Samuel 25 is a story of David almost faltering in the wilderness. And it'd be very easy to judge him for it until we understand what he's really been going through in the wilderness and how much he's had to endure. Like I said, uh, there's something infectious about foolishness. You know, that's unfortunate, but often it seems like the biggest fool is the one that declares the rules of the game. And everyone else scrambles so that they don't get ultimately made a fool themselves by a fool. It's interesting that when the Bible talks about the Christian life, it talks about it as foolishness in the eyes of the world. It says when you actually live the life that God wills for you, people without faith are going to look at your life and actually think you're living the life of a fool because it's a life that's totally surrendered to the trust of God that says, you know, I'm not going to kick and scream and fight and do everything I can to get a piece of that pie and do everything that I can to get my way and become just a battle of the wills to just get my will over the wills of others. But I'm going to just surrender all of this to God. I'm going to entrust my future to him. And when people hurt me, I'm not going to retaliate. When people gossip about me, I'm not going to gossip back about them. It's not going to be tit for tat. But I'm going to love those that God brings into my life. And I'm going to good do, do good to those who try to harm me. And in all of this, I'm just going to entrust myself to God and let him and his will be done in my life. And I think the only way to live that life is if we truly understand God's goodwill toward us and his love toward us. And he demonstrated that so amazingly on the cross of Christ. And he crucified his one son, Jesus, on that cross for your sin and mine. And what Paul says is everything points, therefore, to that cross. Everything that we find confidence to have hope in God is found in that cross. Because when we see Christ on that cross, we realize that there isn't anything that God would withhold from us out of his love for us. And so the cross gives us that absolute confidence that God is for us. Therefore, who can be against us? We are always more than conquerors. Would you just pray those truths into your heart right now as our worship team will lead us in a time of closing response through song. Let's pray.